Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to season two of Well Said, where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, activists, and others on topics of higher education, free speech, and related topics with American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as any podcast platforms such as Apple, Spotify, or Anchor. Download the episode and listen anytime. If you like what you've heard today, you can give our podcast a five-star rating and go to your web- our website, speechfirst.org, and press donate. I'm excited to welcome back Jennifer Cabany, Editor-in-Chief of The College Fix, which is part of a student-free press association that is a nonprofit organization run by veteran journalists to help beginning journalists. They cover campus culture using on-the-ground reports and are often willing to focus on stories universities would rather bury. So thank you, Jennifer, again for joining the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start us off with, you know, we're about two thirds of the way through the fall semester. And I think it'd be great to do a bit of a review here of what you've been seeing on campus. What are some of the trends, some of the new concerns we should be looking into, but also how are the students? You know, some of the biggest concerns we have regarding the chilling of student speech on campus and the targeting of those who dissent from any kind of like woke dogma is that it not only hurts morale and intellectual curiosity, but it creates weak leaders, right? It creates leaders who are students and individuals who are willing to tamp down on ideas they don't agree with. But then at the same time, it's also creating those who are willing to kind of keep their head down and just try to kind of get through things without actually challenging anyone or even themselves. So I would love to hear your thoughts on just kind of like a general synopsis of what you've seen this semester um, with the morale and intellectual curiosity and the drive of students. And then we can get into some of the details. Okay, great. Well, it is a really important topic because we are still seeing the same problems that have plagued higher education this fall 2022 semester that we've seen in you know previous half dozen years, which is you know the advancement and mandate of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, ongoing campus cancel culture shenanigans, uh, critical race theory being uh, prioritized over your know, traditional classical liberal education. Um, the students are still suffering from some issues relating to COVID vaccine mandates and wanting to choose freedom and and individual autonomy, but but being required by their universities um, to get these uh, medicines. So uh, it's basically everything that we saw these last two years is uh, full throttle, Mm -hmm. starting August, September into October, and now November, uh, problems and concerns. There's still some good learning going on of course there are people fighting the good fight which is great um but as far as you know riding the ship you know turning the queen mary around it's uh we're still you know full steam ahead uh, you know with <laughs> yeah. no end in sight with the problems that we face right yeah no i i totally can sympathize with you there um okay so college fix has this great cancel culture tracker um so what are some of the trends that you've been seeing lately um, on one of the latest campus culture incidents, I guess, that you've been seeing that are um, that we should be knowing about. Yeah, so we have the Campus Cancel Culture Database, and we launched that actually about a year ago. And it basically just quantifies, tracks, and lists all of the campus cancel culture incidents, whether, you know, a mascot's removed, a speaker shut down, a student groups gets, you know, doesn't get their funding or isn't approved, all these different things that we see going on. So we launched um, last year, uh, still going strong. We're up to well over 1500 entries. We've added 
three dozen entries just in the last three months alone. Oh, so there's no. been plenty of action, um, you know, on this fall semester. And a couple of examples I can tell you about is we had some conservative Young Americas for Freedom students who were putting on a no Che Day display at the University of <laughs> Illinois, Chicago. And an administrator came and shut them down, basically, you know, told them that they couldn't be there, even though it was public property. Oh. Um, last week, there was a couple of... Uh, high-profile incidents and where guest speakers were shut down. Over at UC Davis, um, there was a guy called MAGA Hulk. He's this African-American bodybuilder who's, you know, big Trump fan, obviously. And he was invited um, by Turning Point USA, but uh, there was a counter-protest and a little bit of chaos and the, and the university shut down that event before it even took place hmm. um, at Penn state. They shut down an event um, featuring Gavin McInnes, even though he's just doing a comedy tour right now. Um, yeah. he, he stepped down from the proud boys like four years ago, but you know, he was, he's trying to do a comedy tour and uh, you know, there was absolute pandemonium over at Penn state and the event was shut down. Hmm. But we also see, you know, we had a, a chemistry professor at New York University who was fired uh, just because he graded kids hard and wouldn't, you know, give the kids a break. He wanted them to excel and he believed in meritocracy. And um, you know, for that, he was fired. Uh, we had wow. students storm a building when uh, Republican Senator Ben Sass was touring the University of Florida. He's about to be voted in as right. the next president. They flipped right. out on that, stormed the building, banged on doors, shouted essentially shut down a Q&A he was involved with um, early um, and on and on it goes. So, you know, yeah. we, we track all of these instances, again, three dozen added to the website just this semester alone. Um, and so it just goes to show you that when um, the left leaning students don't like something going on on the campus, they will use their muscle uh, to shut it down or shout it down. Yeah. Uh, like, again, whether that's a professor that grades, you know, hard, you know, stri strictly or harshly uh, all the way to a speaker they don't like. Yeah. And what I like about the tracker is that it actually also shows whether or not the cancel attempt, the canceling attempt actually worked and led to the canceling either the event or taking down the statue or or firing the professor, for example. Um, and so that I think is really helpful just to kind of see how effective this can actually be and how susceptible campuses are to that pressure um, when when it comes to, you know, these mobs kind of just coming at them with oil. I, I think it is kind of the, the concept of the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? So you don't really see conservative students going out and starting these mobs and like tearing posters off walls and breaking furniture and stuff just to, to, to get into a room to shut down a speaker. But you know, it's it, it, you. So what's going to happen is because the left is willing to use tactics like that, you inevitably are going to see the campus kind of bend and fold to them. And and I think that's really unfortunate, especially in the case of like academic freedom with professors who, in the New York University case, I mean that's crazy. That's he just and you know he just wanted to like basically have like a basic exam schedule and and have students work hard. And I've been seeing a lot of trends actually um, with with the younger generations being really opposed to hard work. And I find that really interesting because it's definitely a time where we have the luxury of being able to multitask with technology and get a lot more done. And, but at the same time, you know, dedicate, having that extra time to dedicate to things um, that we're passionate about, but it seems as almost that's taken for granted. If folks would work, rather have less time and work less and <laughs> less, yeah. less utilities. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. We, we track, an attempted cancellation as well as the cancellation because we wanted to capture the full breadth, depth, and scope of right. the problem. And we'll lay, we'll label it 
you know, if it was successful, we'll label it canceled. And if it was, you know, just an attempt, we'll label it as a protest. And we don't include protests that are traditional protests. You know, right. we, we're for protests. We support protests. <laughs> we like protests. But we don't like when the protest is such that it shuts down the debate or shuts down the opportunity right. to hear the other side. So that's where we draw the line um, between whether it makes it onto the database or not. So it's yeah. busy. Go check it out. We keep add to it every every week. There's a new entry or two. So we'll keep tracking that. That's for sure. Yeah. No, no, really great resource. But I think it's important to say, yeah, it's it's definitely the, the idea of the cancel culture. I mean, it's you kind of ask yourself, are universities even educating students on the First Amendment and kind of like helping them understand that actually how speech is protected in this country because the attempt, the desire to cancel uh, speakers or to shut down each other, uh, each other's speech is something that is a great learning opportunity for universities, especially law schools. You know, we saw the incidents with Yale Law School um, and, you know, obviously Justice Alito has made some comments on this um, with regards to the importance of free speech on campuses and kind of how law schools and universities are essentially supposed to set the example for free speech. Um, but the concern is kind of like, what example are they setting and by just letting all of this happen and not actually using it as a teaching opportunity um, for students on the First Amendment? Um, yeah, but the good the good news is like groups like Speech First and other groups are fighting to remind students, whether they like right. it or not, that mm-hmm. offensive speech is still free speech. If it's offensive to them, it's not all speech is offensive right. to everybody. But, exactly. you know, even if they're offended by that speech, you know, that famous quote, I may not like what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say yes. it. Like that's that's a founding principle of America. Exactly. Uh, we're one of the few countries in the on the globe that that upholds that principle. It's a vital principle for yeah. freedom and liberty. Mm-hmm. And so it's scary to think of how many students would rather, you know, monitor, censor, shut down, allow the government really think about that, allow yeah. the government to monitor speech. I don't know if they've thought that one through yet, but they should. <laughs> I'm not I'm not super sure they have. Um, again, this is such a great teaching moment for the universities to be like, hey, we're the only country in the world that like really protects speech in the way that we do. Um, and it is very unique to American culture. Um Okay, so let's move on because I want to talk about critical race theories, the push of critical race theory on campus through these various diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and these departments on campuses. How are they operating on campus? Because we've, I think just in the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about CRT and K through 12. We've talked a lot about um, the theory itself, like the legal theory and kind of what that looks like. But we're not really talking too much about the connection between DEI and CRT. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, what have you been seeing on campus? Um, how are how are they infiltrating, uh, you know, uh, issues with campus speech? Um, and is this a real concern we should have? Is it something we should be monitoring? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So this is a huge issue. So basically more and more universities and there's hundreds of them now. Yeah. Essentially require a diversity, equity and inclusion um, to for for tenure or promotion or even to be hired. You know, you have to show some sort of um you, commitment to DEI as a scholar. Um, And that could take the form of, you know, um, anything from, (laughs) I don't know if you can see in the background. I can see your cat. It's adorable. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm having a cat moment. Maybe this will go viral, but that's. Yeah. We'll we'll leave it on the, uh, we'll leave it on the video for the viewers. (laughs) He opened the door. He's a Maine Coon. He's very smart. And he he just figured out how to open the door. So that's funny. Yeah. Leave it on the video. Everybody loves a good cat moment, right? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. But so essentially these um, DEI mandates, um, uh, force the professors, the scholars seeking to be hired, seeking mm-hmm. to get tenured to either 
include DEI somehow in their classroom or in their curriculum or whether they're, you know, whether it's the readings they assign or whether it's they go to their a training or they, they implement it somehow inside their classroom, inside their ongoing training. Um, and then they have to prove that they have done so uh, to the committees that are in charge of essentially their future careers. Um, so that's how DEI is being mandated inside the classroom. It's it's quite insidious because again, they're like telling the teachers, the professors, well, unless you include DEI in your syllabus and your curriculum and your readings and your lectures, and then tell us how you did that, right. uh, we're not going to give you tenure. <laughs> so it's a tough hill to climb for these scholars yeah. who may be liberty-minded or conservative-minded or, um, you know, because DEI is critical race theory. Right. I mean, I mean, in a way they're synonymous and not exactly, but in a way. So, um, the, and then a lot of, with the STEM professors, they're like, what mm. I'm teaching about quantum particles. I, I don't even know what this has to do with DEI and CRT, but unless you implement, you know, DEI into your quantum particle, you know, theoretical physics class, you're not going to, you know, get that raised or the tenure tracks. And they're like, the STEM guys are scratching their head going, can we just focus on our, our math yeah. and finding a cure for cancer and finding a cure for Alzheimer's and learning how to explore the galaxy? And, you know, yeah. what? They just want to yeah. be left alone to their science, poor guys and girls. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So I, in addition to for, for tenure, I'm seeing it on even just like hiring applications for most universities. Everyone has to kind of agree before they can even apply to the university that they'll somehow either implement or sign on to this DEI um, initiative on their campus. Um, but yeah, the big concern is like, how are students taking this? Because, and I'm curious what the effects, especially in the STEM fields are. I was just at the Turning Point um, Student Action Summit this last summer. And uh, our breakout session, you know, had about 150 kids in there and they were all great um, high school kind of college students, um, really, really motivated for free speech. Um, but, you know, I asked them, you know, raise your hand if you're in a STEM field, because I was kind of curious how many of these students were actually political science majors. Uh, and most of the room raised their hand. And so they're all like engineering majors, uh, biology majors, chem, you know, a lot of them are in IT, like tech. And what are, you know, they're, they're obviously disconcerted with what they're hearing in the classroom to want to go join their chapter on campus for Turning Point, which is yes. obviously a, an organization that's going to have a lot of political positions. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on the effects on students who are learning learning these types of things and then getting distracted with all of these other DEI mandates. Well, I think they're frustrated because, I mean, people enter STEM fields on, on some level because they want to improve, they want to build, they want to discover, they want to learn. And they're really actually, I think, an inclusive community by default. Right. They're they're searching for truth. They're searching for answers right. they're searching for solutions or searching for cures. And so to be sent around, like spending your time being told you're racist, <laughs> like they're like, can I just let, let's just focus on the, the important things in life, you know, and stop just telling me I'm racist and, you know, I'm a horrible person. So I think there's just a level of frustration, but it's even more troubling than that, because now a lot of these journals, these scholarly journals um, are even going so far, and this is the a trend I've seen in the last two months. So this is hot off the press, but now a lot of journals are saying, well, we're not going to accept any papers unless you've considered or included DEI perspectives. So wow. now, it's, and this is STEM. So wow. beyond humanities, um, they're now telling, you know, STEM scholars, these journals are like, well, unless you, you know, include DEI or include um, some aspect of that in your um, grant proposal or your scholarly research or journal, we're not going to fund it. We're not going to publish it. I mean, it's quite alarming. I mean, this is very insidious yeah. censorship when you're going after, you know, the money that you need to, to do your research or the exactly. publica publications that you need to, to let people know of your results 
um, which is also a part of how you get tenure is showing, you know, that you've been published. Yeah. And talk about a major distraction. Like you said, being wanting to wanting to show like that you've you've actually done this large experiment and you've you, all this research and you've actually come to some massive conclusions that could really affect your field. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have to somehow link that to DEI or CRT <laughs> just so that you can get it published and get the information out there in the world. That that is fascinating and yeah. it's very distracting. And I mean, I chuckle, but it's really serious. I mean, everything yeah. from like the medical community, which is trying to find cures for cancer right. and uh, you know Alzheimer's and you know a, a whole host of, of of diseases. And the medical yeah. schools are pushing DEI, requiring it in their curriculum now. You know, doctors and nurses can't even get through med school without being told that everybody's health problems you know, stems from systemic racism, which are like, oh, what about, you know, maybe heart disease and lung disease and other, you know, eating right and exercise. What happened to all that? Well, no, yeah. it's, you know, white supremacy. Well, no, exercise medical... is ableist now. That's ableist. Yeah, I know, right, exactly. And exercise. then, um, <laughs> or they're being told that, you know, being a, a morbidly obese is okay and should be welcome, which, you know, frankly, no, it's kind of unhealthy. Yeah. Um. So there's on the medical side and then on the STEM side, again, they're trying to discover well, what is this universe made out of like what yeah. you know, what are quarks made out of how does the, everything run i mean maybe they could discover an endless source of energy right or well i mean that would violate <laughs> the the first law of thermodynamics but my point is <laughs> is maybe they could de- de- find a way to harness the energy i don't right. know i guess if, if they're allowed to just focus on their research as opposed to figuring out how they're going to meet this dei directive so right um the or point hey, maybe is, again, even find a way, find a way that uh, where we don't have to be so reliant on Russia, for example, for oil anymore. Where, well, yeah, I mean, you know, or, like, that's the thing. Is like, like, I think like national humanity. security terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is <laughs> this is important stuff we're dealing with, yeah. and yet every the problem with a critical race uh, theorist is that everything to them is white supremacy. Everything mm. is viewed through their lace the the lens of race gender and sexuality, but that's not realistic. And that's not the way the world entirely works, but man, they're shoving it down our throats. They're shoving it down our kids' throats. They're shoving it down culture's throats. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's tiring. I mean, we're we're swimming uphill here, trying to just get back to some sense of normalcy. It really kind of went, uh, skyrocketed after the George Floyd thing, as tragic as the situation about George Floyd was, they used that as a springboard to just, right. you know, put the DEI CRT agenda um, on steroids and just, you know, basically use that to, to force it down. Now it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Right. And right. you can't say anything negative about it or you're a racist. Right. right. So that's how they get you to shut up <laughs> or you yeah. won't get a you won't get hired permanently. Right. One of the two. <laughs> right. That's the interesting thing is how they were able to launch critical race theory into something that's actually like common, you know, into common vernacular and something that's taught in, in modern day. I mean, this is an old Marxist theory. Right. Like that was actually, you know, amplified during, like you said, the George Floyd uh, Black Lives Matter kind of movement. There, this is when it was kind of amplified and really instilled in college campuses, and now it's become very mainstream. But before, it was relatively antiquated. Um, folks, you know, wouldn't teach it because it was definitely directly linked to like Marxist professors who are using Marxist uh, philosophy and ideology to push this identity politics concept onto people and yeah. to try to explain the world through those lenses. Yeah. Um, and now it's kind of just like I said, become mainstream because people aren't doing their research, and it's just been um, able. They've linked it to all these like social media movements. Yeah, but I think, unfortunately, we have such a strong case against it. I mean, you can look at so many examples. For example, uh, the military. Those are your brothers and sisters in arms. They don't right. care what skin color you are. We all bleed red. We're all Americans. Right. So, I mean, they they that is a perfect example of people coming together um, in unity. Or even, you know, different races on the police force. There are, you know, there's plenty of 
fantastic African-American police officers. Um, and they all share the same common goal of protecting and serving their communities. Right. Um, you know, or sports teams. I mean, look, you don't see when you're in a, where I don't know where you're from. I mean, I used to root for the chargers here in San Diego and then they, they abandoned us to LA. But right. the point is, is like, if you're in SoFi stadium rooting on the chargers, it, black, white, brown, whatever, you know, we're right. all chargers fans high fiving and, you know, hugging each other and, you know, getting along and everything. We, you know, at the same time, we have more in common as Americans. Right. Yeah. But but it, the the critical race theory idea of just dividing us by skin color, it's just it's, uh, you know, can be disproven just by looking at around and seeing like, you know what? There's so many ways in which we overcome, um, you know, that bias and join together for a greater common good. So let us look at the positive, advance the positive and look how far we've come rather than, you know, just rehab. I mean, if you ever really listened to the CRT people, they're, they're pulling up stuff from 200 years ago, 100 years yeah. ago. Like, I mean, for the love of God, it's 2022. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the examples that you listed off, actually, the like military, law and order, uh, sports, sporting events, these are all things that unify, as you mentioned, they're not things that, you know, when we talk about, everyone always could say like diversity is our greatest strength. And I was actually like, no, actually unity is our greatest strength. The fact that's, that you can all trademark that, Sharice, right, exactly. yeah, that is our yeah, yeah, trademark like, that right now. That's a great expression. I agree with exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> like that's being able to come from diverse backgrounds and all come together on these issues. And so that's so interesting because, you know, yesterday I was listening to the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC cases um, uh, at, at the Supreme Court. And the Solicitor General tried to make this argument that the officer corps in the military, it's necessary for their effectiveness and readiness for them to be as diverse as possible. Um, and that that's why affirmative action in colleges is important because you have the academies and the ROTC programs in the universities that actually are feeders into the officer corps of the military. And I was like, wow, I this is amazing. I can't believe they're willing to like take it to this level, but okay. And so I'm like listening to her and she, she argued it pretty well. But what blew my mind is just like, wait, are you telling me that that there are soldiers in the military like who cannot who who are, who are will exhibit insubordinates like if they don't have another someone of a, the same skin color as them as an officer like I just don't I can't believe that I can't honestly believe that it's just a would, platitude it's exactly. just a platitude they yeah. say but it's not backed up with any you know empirical or even anecdotal. Um, right. you know, my, my son was a Marine and he, you know, you're all Marines, you're all in the same, you're all still right. getting yelled at by the same drill instructor. you still got the same, you know, chores and things around. I mean, there's, you guys are all in the same band of brothers, so to speak. So it's right. a, it's a platitude that they spread, but it, when, when you, when you really look into it, it uh, falls flat. Yeah. And the military really depends on that, that unity and that, that uniformity even more so. Um, and that's what I actually think is, um, interesting is that they'd be willing to go as far as saying, that someone that you're you're reduced down, and this is what it all comes down to. You are reduced down to your skin color. It doesn't really matter what your intellectual capacity is. It doesn't matter how smart or how um you know how good you are, or what you do, how skilled you are. But if your your skin color is going to take priority, and that will shape everything. And to me, it's like, well, that that me, that's like that's exactly what racism is. <laughs> so yeah, I just like again is, yeah. can't really understand what their what their logic is or their lack thereof. Right. Um, absolutely. So we talked about STEM fields and we talked about the effects that CRTs and DEI is having on this, but my, I'm kind of curious. So there's all these DEI initiatives that, I mean, obviously at Speech First, we work a lot on the ones having to do with like bias reporting, bias response teams, but there's just a lot going on with this encouragement of censorship on campus. And so uh, you've got like the cancel culture stuff and then we've got like the bias reporting. Um, but what are some other ways that you've seen other examples of like censorship and 
Is it mostly on like the student side, student on student censorship, or are you seeing it primarily kind of on the universities going after the students? Well, one thing you're going to kind of see, and we've we've proven this through surveys of students. Um, in fact, Fire and uh, uh, Real Clear Education just uh, yeah. surveyed like fifty thousand people, and they asked the students like, "Well, are you going to debate your professor? Are you going to debate your peers? Yeah. Um, are you going to turn in you know an essay that might disagree with your professor?" And a lot of them, a good big chunk of them, say, "No way, man! I'm not going <laughs> to you know become the classroom pariah. I'm not going to disagree with my professor openly. I'm not going to you know become you know you know the one everybody." hates in class. They just keep their heads down and their mouths shut and they get through their four years. So it's kind of like the censorship by, you know, bullying and oppression of the left where, you know, they'll use ad hominem attacks and basically turn you into a, you know, pariah or call you names. If you just want to debate liberty, freedom, um, constitutional principles, conservatism, you know, capitalism, God forbid, you know, right. so, you know, the, the, the censorship, there's the obvious censorship and then there's the more insidious stuff that's kind of, um, done by, you know, d- by that, that sort of unwritten, un- unspoken pressure, uh, that are you really going to be that one? That's going to be the one that we're going to all pile on in class because we're going to, you know, decide that you're the racist one that we're going to have to be like that. So I think a lot of kids just keep their mouths shut. And so it's, a uh, it's a censorship by omission, I suppose. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really interesting. And then there's also the issue of like, so you wrote an article not too long ago, just on a professor who was canceled. I think it was SDSU. Um, uh, they, it, it, yeah. they, was there something linked in there called like offensive phobia? Like, yeah. So is, this, yeah. the San Diego state professor, right. he was just trying to, so he, he's taught on racism for two decades. He's won awards. And all he's hmm. trying to say is there is a difference between, um, using the n-word and referencing it as part of a discussion on anything it could be huckleberry finn it could be reading uh a supreme court decision from you know the 1940s or whatever but what he's saying is it's one thing to like use it when you're having it as part of a discussion academic scholarly or otherwise or as opposed to like using it to use it you know so it's this distinction but um and the students in this class, to their credit, actually understood it. It was actually a visiting person, student, who came oh. and started yelling at him. This was yeah. in the spring semester. And then the dean yanked him from his two classes. But the good news is he lawyered up and he's back to teaching what he wants to teach this fall. And so we wanted to circle back and report on that. So, Great. but but he still went through HE double sticks. I don't know if I'm allowed to you know say anything, but you know what I mean? It was, a, yeah. it was still a very horrible, tough experience for him to be tarred and feathered, you know, locally in his community by his peers, you know, to be yanked from his classes after two decades, um, to be called names and everything, just because you're trying to advance this academic concept of the use distinction. Yeah. And I I think, and, you know, on that point specifically, it's, this is, he was lucky enough to be able to afford lawyers and to, to be, and he was smart enough to lawyer up early enough. You know, not everyone gets kind of that same out. A lot of folks do actually get fired. They lose tenure. Um, and there are actual, like there's, there's worse consequences, but, um, I'm glad that glad to hear that he's back in class. I guess my concern is like, or what I found very interesting about the whole thing was like the offense of phobia, like the offensive phobia concept is yeah. like this, this, this being, you're afraid of being offended. So then you find everything offensive and report it. Is that what's kind of like this concept is I've never heard this term before. So if you want to elaborate, well, it's a, it's a term that he has particularly, oh, coined. Okay. but you have to consider the 
what we've been seeing this last decade, really, which is the coddling of the American mind, right. yeah. the the bubble wrap generation, the participation trophy generation, <laughs> uh, the helicopter parenting generation, was really doing a disservice to teaching young people how to face adversity, overcome obstacles, take challenges on head on. So when yeah. they you know when they get to college and somebody hurts their feelings, you know they they kind of flip out and have a temper tantrum. Um, instead of just addressing it as a, as an adult, a rational, reasonable adult. So really what we're seeing is a, is a, uh, I feel basically a product of the way we've raised this last generation for the last decade. And now we're paying the price and people who say, oh, it's just, oh, once they hit the real world, they'll see how it works. No, because these are the, these are the cry bullies that get the jobs at Silicon Valley and corporate America. And then they implement their ideologies in uh, those two fields. And then we all have to suffer from it, whether it's being censored on social media or having annoying commercials during Super Bowl. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, I think a perfect example of that is the ESG requirements in the corporations, which is, you know, these, these, uh, I forget, it's like, something about environmental, like consciousness, and, and all these other very, like, it's essentially a DEI initiative, but for woke corporations. And in order to actually be a corporation that can receive certain stature, you actually have to hit these markers on the ESG scale. So I find as like a company, you know, this is something that we're seeing. It does carry out of universities. In fact, universities aren't just like these bubbles that just exist on their own. And then when you leave them, everything changes. Because I think that's how we have thought about them for so long. But really it is, you know, this, it is like a continuation. Everything that we see that we don't like essentially starts on university campuses, microaggressions, All of that stuff started on campuses. Cancel culture. And so then the common refrain is we all live on (laughs) campus now. (laughs) Exactly. That's a good one. You should trademark that one. (laughs) I didn't come up with it, unfortunately, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is good, though. We all live on campus now. Um, Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to touch on uh, before we wrap up. One actually is uh, the Dobbs decision stuff. So um, before I get, yeah, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about, like what students can do and like some of these other conferences coming up. But obviously this summer, Huge Supreme Court battle um, on on the Dobbs decision with when it came to overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and that is something that you know if there's a lot of pro life students on campus, there's the Students for Life, you know, but there's also obviously a huge movement on campus for uh, you know a, that's pro abortion. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on what you or like what your thoughts are on the whole thing and like how that's affected campus life. But then I'm also kind of curious uh, what you've seen and uh, from the from the students that you guys work with, who are journalists but then also um, just generally with some of the the attacks on the pro-life movement. Sure. So I think for one thing, uh, and this is my personal opinion, but I feel like the decision was a little exaggerated and overblown in the sense that it didn't outlaw abortion. Right. It just brought it back to the states. So (laughs) I feel like there was a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration on college campuses, scaring young people into thinking, oh, yeah, we're back to the coat hanger generation. No, not really. It's just a state thing now. And plus, there's like so many over the counter contraceptions, like 30. I mean, you know, that I can just, so I don't understand why we have to really, you know, freak out that hard. But, you know, that's just my personal opinion. But having said that, um, the, there was this idea that you'd see a, a, a mass of college students leave red states, you know, leave colleges and, and, you know, transfer to blue state colleges. Well, we looked into that. The college fix looked into that. We could not find proof of that. We found no proof that there was this mass exodus of students from red state universities to blue state universities. So there's that, you know, this is a 
This is one of the most divisive topics in the nation because you have a group of young people who are believe that abortion is the murder of an unborn child. And they are absolutely dedicated to defending the preborn and ending what they consider murder. But then on the on the other side, you have this really very a dedicated group of people who agree just the opposite that it's the woman's right to choose and it's not a viable, you know, life or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this is like I think abortion and slavery are the just gonna always be the two most divisive topics yeah. um and, and struggles our nation has faced and ever will face. Hmm. And it's you know that debate is definitely going to play out on college campuses. But you've got um when it comes to the abortion topic really dedicated people on both sides that are just going to continue to clash with, I think, no end in sight. And I say, as long as we allow the debate to continue within the higher education realm, that's fine. It's when you shut down one side or the other where it becomes a problem, but then let the issue play out in the courts and play out in the state legislatures. Right. Yeah. And have you seen... So I know just traditionally, even before Dobbs, you know, there was always um, issues where if ever pro-life, I know the the students for life like to do the thing where they put all the crosses out for all the, the children that have been aborted for that year or that month or whatever. Um, and then, or just generally for, for the entire duration of, of, of post Roe v. Wade. Um, but then usually you'll see like additional students kind of come in and like trample it and like, uh, you know, vandalize the the display. Um, so have we, are we seeing more of that or is you say it's about the same, like any kind of like attacks on displays or vandalization or, you know, that it's, we're always going to have that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they'll put up, they'll put up the crosses and then somebody will come and rip up the crosses. Right. Um, and then, I mean, to truth be told, sometimes there's some pretty graphic pictures and even right. I find them very, very difficult to view. Uh, but whether they require a trigger warning or not is something that is continued to be debated. Um, so the, the issue is, yeah, there's the, the left-leaning students do tend to want to vandalize, rip down flyers, pull up, you know, displays. I mean, we saw, we've seen a lot of that um, for pro-life student groups as well as just Republican or conservative groups, you know, when they're tabling, you know, it's the, it's the group week where everybody's got their little table out. Um, in the beginning of September, we saw uh, a lot of examples of students being harassed and steal their pins, rip their mm-hmm. papers. Somebody even overturned a table. Um, wow. So, yeah, whether it's, you know, the pro-life issue or just center right issues, a lot of times either the students that are getting harassed for just trying to be part of that community, part of that debate um, and you know, advertising their group on campus as well and, and what's important to them. So yeah. we, we got to make sure we're creating, dare I say it? A safe space for debate. You know? Yeah. Well, for debate, that's the important part. You're not creating a safe space for one side or the other. You're creating right, exactly, a space yeah. that is like a leads to open inquiry and discussion the way that college universities um, ideally are supposed to to be like. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a big concern. Um, you So you, I think you guys wrote an article about it, but I've also seen it advertised around um, that Stanford University is having this academic freedom conference. Yes. Um, can you tell us about this? And is it something we should be optimistic about? Are they going to come out of there being like, yes, let's renew academic freedom. We're going to like reapproach the way we talk about colleges and college campuses and, and you know, DEI and all this stuff. Or do you think it's just kind of like a big wash and, and there's just going to be platitudes and nothing more? No, I do think I do think it's something to be excited about. And the reason is because it is bringing 
big, big names from both the left and the right and the center to say, hey, enough is enough. Let's defend academic freedom. Let's defend open inquiry. Let's defend freedom of speech. I may not agree with you, but this is a vital aspect of higher education and the classical liberal education. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have really big, na- I mean, we have Nadine Strassen, the former ACLU president. Um, we have Steven Pinker, the famed Harvard um, psychologist. Uh, we have Peter Thiel, the tech mogul, the libertarian yeah. tech mogul. Um, Greg Lukianoff, the president of FIRE. Jonathan mm-hmm. Haidt, the the coddling of the American mind, NYU professor. Right. Um, even, I mean, we have folks on the right and we have folks on the left. Uh, Jerry Coigne, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's the University of Chicago biologist who runs Why Evolution is True blog. But even he is like, hey, free speech, guys. You know, <laughs> so we have a, folks on the left and the right and the center who's trying who are trying to say enough is enough. And they're getting together and they're going to talk about what can they do to go back to their campuses and defend these concepts and principles. No, that's, I mean, that's super encouraging. I'm, my fingers crossed that it's a productive conference and that it's not just a bunch of professors hanging out with each other talking about, because, you know, at the end of the day, they're still employees of, of the institutions that we're criticizing. So it's like, you're hoping that they're going to stand up um, for what's right and not actually bend, bend to the universities and the institutions. Well, I think it's strength in numbers because the audience yeah. is largely faculty. There's some concerned right. alumni too, but I think the idea is to, you know, you have these big headliner freedom activists, right? That represent the whole spectrum of political views. Mm-hmm. And then you have these average like troops, boots on the ground faculty in the audience being like, you know what? Yeah. Like they can do it. I can do it. Let's, you know, strengthen numbers, camaraderie, you know? So yeah. I feel like it will be a good chance to buoy and boister what, what the overall goal is, which is academic freedom. No, I think that'd be great. And yeah. So looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, okay. So I just want to kind of end on some advice that you might have for students on campus who are struggling either um, with expressing themselves or they feel like they can't speak up, uh, you know, whether they be conservative or liberal, they just feel kind of, they feel chilled, like they're censoring themselves or they they don't have kind of like a home on campus where they can like really kind of go out there and ask the tough questions. Um, what's some advice that you'd, you'd give them? Okay. A couple of things. One, join a group. Yeah. Every campus is going to have a group that appeals to you. And there's even like scholarly conservative scholarly groups that don't really get involved in, you know, that in your face sort of activism where they're inviting big name controversial speakers. So I'm thinking groups like Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that sort of thing where you can just find the intellectual debate without the chaos or the controversy. But yeah, then there's always um, different student groups that are a bit more proactive. Young America's Foundation, obviously, Turning Point USA, obviously. But if you're more politically minded and don't want to get too much into campus activism, you could always join, you know, the College Republicans. Mm-hmm. They still doing a lot of traditional stuff like, you know, canvas these neighborhoods during elections and, you know, very uh, focused on politics and political topics. Um, and then, you know, or whatever passion you have, you know, Greek life or, um, intelligent design or sports, just find a community where you can enjoy camaraderie and networking and just enjoy your college years without feeling like you're isolated or alone, or you're the only one. Um, so that's, that's number one, but as far as like what debates you're going to challenge and take on, whether that's in the classroom or in the quad, that's a personal decision because not everybody really wants to be that squeaky wheel. We need those squeaky wheels, but not everybody wants to be. And so sometimes I I'll say like, look, it, you know, and I've, I've given this advice sometimes too, but it's like, 
if you want to just kind of put your head down, keep your mouth shut and get out of there in four years, I don't blame you. You know, not everybody wants to deal with the headache and the nightmare of being called all sorts of racist, you know, names like being called racist, which by the way, in my opinion, nowadays it's, it's lost its punch. Oh, Uh, when I was growing up in the early, you know, nineties, if you were called that, I mean, it was like, what? No, yeah. like you would defend your honor and it would be horrible. <laughs> Nowadays, it's like, well, if everything's racist, nothing is racist, right? right. So in a way, it's lost its its meaning um, due to the way the left uses it. However, it's yeah. still not fun to be called that. Mm-hmm. So I let students decide whether they want to be that, you know, aggressive activist or if they want to fight, fight in other ways. Um, and I, I really, really don't blame students who just kind of want to get through college but I do think it's important to try to find a happy medium where maybe, you know, maybe you're politely challenging here or there without, you know, jeopardizing your career or, um, you know, I mean, because some of these kids, they get doxxed. I mean, literally yeah, cyber bullied yeah, on the some... Internet. I mean, they're getting cyber bullied. Yeah. They'll call their employers, you know, right. um, they'll publish addresses. So you're taking a risk. It's it's really quite awful. And also, um, obviously, as a student, you're always thinking about your future. So you're like the last thing you want is like a, a, a web trail, an Internet trail of you being a racist and a bigot. Yeah, exactly. Um, or even being yeah. accused of that is, is, yeah, is, exactly. is rough. So, um, you know, it's just a personal decision and is a case by case basis. But I always encourage students to be strong and courageous, strengthen numbers, find camaraderie, yeah. find mm-hmm. support um, because they're, you know, they're not alone. In fact, they're, they're probably the silent majority. Oh, totally. That's a number of students have told me that they think there is a large silent majority on campus that just kind of, again, keeps their heads down. And, you know, when you when you talk about these groups, and these organizations, they're great avenues to in addition to having like a group that you can um, ha- have that camaraderie with. You also can use those groups as to like basically host a debate with other experts on the issues that you care about the most, but you don't have to be the one debating, right? And then you can kind of bring in speakers and and um, have them kind of hash it out in front of the university, in front of the students. Uh, so you can at least, you know, you might be associated with the organization, but you at least dodge some of the bullets there with having to make the points yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, Jennifer, it's been so wonderful having you on. I really appreciate you telling us all about what College Fix has been up to and some of the trends you've been seeing on campus. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, like I said, this is season two of Well Said, so get you know get ready for some really great episodes to come. I'm Sharice Trump, and Jennifer, that was Well Said.